This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And away we go. Welcome aboard. Hope you'll stay for the duration. Just going through some emails here and uh, received this from just a dateline, Ohio, Fireball. Did you hear about this? September 27th, a meteor exploded in the skies above the U.S. Midwest. Witnesses report shadows cast upon the ground, unusual sounds, and a swirling contrail marking the aftermath of the blast. It was the most brilliant fireball that I've ever seen, reports Angela McLean, who send... Uh, well, you can't see it, but there's a picture here from a Faith Ranch in uh, Jewett, Iowa, uh, Iowa. Or Iowa, sorry. Ohio. Uh, The entire landscape lit up, she continues. I spun around, and there it was, a huge bright green light streaking across the sky. I had similar reports, uh, meteors uh, across the the U.S. southeast. Uh, What's going on? And then, of course, we had all this talk about uh, Planet X. Now, I'm sort of uncertain as to what the status of Planet X is. I mean, this this story has been in the news, uh, uh, well probably going back to the, uh, the Zachariah Sitchin and the Anunnaki and this, this, um, this planet with this rather uh, strange 3,600-year orbit. Uh, and we've been told repeatedly that it's coming back and is on a collision course with Earth. And I believe it was supposed to collide uh, with our little blue marble here sometime in, in uh, 2012 and then in May of 2013. I'm not sure what the status is. Uh, maybe we'll find out a little, uh, a little bit later. Uh, our good friend, remote viewer, Dr. Douglas James Cottrell is uh, standing by to uh, talk Earth changes with us. Uh, does something wicked this way come? Well, we'll, we'll find out. Uh, and, of course, just hours, I guess, or, or days uh, at the most, away from a, uh, a government shutdown in the United States. And everyone's sort of, you know, doom and gloom about, uh, about a, a government shutdown. What I wouldn't give for a government shutdown, just a few days, just to get those people off our backs... I mean, you know what I'm saying? Why do we, why do we get so, I mean, I know the checks got to get in the mail and there are people that are dependent on their social security and so forth. And that is a legitimate concern. But other than that, uh, would anyone notice? I mean, what actually gets done in government? Uh, not much. And that's a good thing as far as I'm concerned. But then, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a libertarian and I, I'm not, uh, I, I'm not, I'm one of those people who, 
who contends that the government is not here to help. And I'm sure there's a number of you out there uh, who share that view. <laughs> and many of you out there actually uh, work for the government. And uh, God bless you. Uh, I'm not talking about you. It's the other ones. It's the other ones. You know what I'm saying. Wink, wink. All right. Listen, I mentioned earth changes and uh, what is in store. Uh, you know, the old Bob Dylan uh, tune, a hard rains are going to fall. Is that what's coming our way? It certainly seems like it if you look at the uh, the newspapers. Uh, you know, ongoing strife in the Middle East, Egypt, Syria, of course, Iran. Uh, and then, of course, we have uh, this economic mess uh, that the mainstream media continues to tell us everything is just, you know, it's Goldilocks, right? Everything is just perfect. Everything's on track and the recovery is coming along nicely. Uh, meanwhile, uh, the, uh, the Federal Reserve is pumping $85 billion a month into this black hole and we are not seeing any sort of recovery that I can tell. Uh, if you look at uh, the, the shadow stats, and I'm not talking about the official government numbers that the mainstream media uh, parrots, I'm talking about the shadow stats. Uh, things like the E6, which is a, a, a more accurate uh, a picture, a snapshot of, of, of unemployment in the United States, it could be as high as 24%. Now, if you're of a certain age, that's going to sound familiar. It was called the Depression. Uh, and uh, it's not, uh, you know, limited to the United States. Look what's happening in Japan. Look what's happening in Europe. Any one of the, those, you know, we're talking about the three biggest economies on the planet. If any one of those were to go down, it could be, you know, lights out. But all three, perhaps, at the same time? This is serious, folks. Anyway, enough of me pontificating. Let's uh, say hello to our dear friend, Dr. Douglas James Cottrell. He's best known as a trance clairvoyant. He's a spiritual healer, teacher published author. He holds a doctorate in therapeutic counseling. He demonstrates many abilities studied by noetic sciences, including telepathy, telekinesis, remote viewing, prediction, and prophecy. He's one of a select few able to demonstrate all of these abilities and even fewer who are considered a reliable information source. And Dr. Douglas's deep trance meditation style is often compared to that of Edgar Casey, one of the most documented medical intuitives of the 20th century. He's been variously called a mystic, a seer, the man with x-ray eyes, and the last of the sleeping prophets. He's also the author of The New Renaissance, a prophecy of 2012 and beyond, which I believe has now just been uh, printed in uh, four, four languages. Dr. Cottrell, welcome once again. How are you, my friend? Douglas is fine, Richard. It's a pleasure to be on the show with you again. We've been talking on the air like this for, what, 20, 30 years maybe? 50, I think, actually, uh, <laughs> in another life. Uh, it's, been, it's been close to 20. Yeah, and uh, uh, I can attest that many of the things uh, that you have uh, documented, not only on my programs, uh, the various incarnations of my programs, but on your, on your website, uh, in your books, uh, have come to pass. Uh, and, you know, obviously we are in troubled times and a lot of people are quite frankly worried. And I think with, with, with good reason. Uh, so let's talk about some of the things that we're hearing, you know, in the, uh, uh, in the ether, uh, online, we're hearing rumors about, uh, you know, collision with planet X we're hearing. And, and, and some of these actually we're hearing from, you know, uh, mainstream scientific organizations, uh, NASA, for example, they're they're concerned about solar flares and solar activity. If we have a, a, another, uh, I believe it was the the, the Carrington event uh, back in the um, the uh, the late 1900s or the late uh, 1800s, 
uh, where telegraphs, you know, went, uh, went out all over the world because of a solar, uh, you know, coronal ejection. If we had one of those today, given our dependence on, you know, the electrical grid and, and uh, you know, all our digital devices and so forth, it could be lights out. We could be freezing in the dark for a very long time. So you you want to start with with uh, with that? I mean, uh, how do you how do you want to approach this as a as a as a remote viewer, uh, uh, as someone who's had uh, dreams about solar activity? Well, let's uh, let's review a little bit. <clears throat> I've been on your show many times, and we've talked about things that come true, and then later scientific research uh, proves out what we said a long, long time ago. I was talking about the crust of the Earth spinning at a different speed than uh, the center or the mantle, uh, mantle of the Earth. And not too long, a couple of years later, there was a scientific proof that was saying, yes, the crust is spinning at a different speed, but it was considered natural. Well, it's not natural. Uh, the way uh, we're getting in trouble weather-wise and the Earth changes that are taking place is that the mantle and the Earth are, sp- are spinning at different speeds, creating huge friction which is heating up the crust, which is heating up the oceans, which is completely devastating our climate. I want to tell everybody that... Oh, let me just jump in here because that's interesting. I've not, I, I'm on the record. I think people know that I'm not a, I don't believe in man-made global warming. Absolutely so, right. So absolutely. you're saying that the, the, the cause of global warming or climate change has to do with the, the mantle spinning at a different speed than the... The Earth's crust. That's right. Now, the reasons it's happening from, um, well, all the mining and and, uh, the fracking that's taking place to who knows what, you know, let's not, let's just sidestep that and say it is happening. And I was on your show years ago talking about it. uh, And my prediction, what I've seen, and I saw this in a vision, was that the Earth is spinning. Uh, it's actually tilting. We're going to change the, uh, the not only the polarity, but we're going to change the geographical uh, north and south poles because of this. But the point is that the cause of what's taking place in our climate is that the oceans are heating up. The reason they're heating up is because the earth is heating up from the inside out. And that's why you're seeing anim- uh, creatures uh, beaching themselves and sharks heading into uh, fresh water like the St. Lawrence and things like that. Birds falling out of the sky. Exactly right. There's gases being released into the air that are, are just, you know, devastating from this cracking and, and shifting. Um, there was a pyramid discovered off the cor- uh, coast of uh, Portugal just recently. Uh, there are all kinds of surprises coming up, and people are now flying Google or have been under the under the ocean. There's, they have seen very strange things. Atlantis is being reported to come up in off the coast of Spain and, and elsewhere, including this, what we think is probably a remnant of Atlantis in Portugal. But getting to the point, this, the Earth's crust has fallen and cities and continents have gone underwater like Atlantis. And that's what's going to happen now. Because of the heating, the crust is going, it's like a cake. It's going to heat up and it's going to fracture. Volcanoes are on the rise. Earthquakes are happening thousandfold. And I've been saying on your show since 19, in the 1980s anyway, I've been talking about these things that are happening. But back to the point, the reason we're having this difficulty is the oceans are heating up and it's causing everything. One degree is really bad. Two degrees heating up is horrific. And we're going to see four degrees temperature change in the oceans. Where does this information come to you from? The Akashic Record? Is this coming through your deep trans meditative state? Uh, dreams? How? 
All of the, all of above. Mm. I wrote that book, The New Renaissance, A Prophecy of 2012 and Beyond. And I was in Poland telling people who were who were hysterical that December, you know, 2012, we're going to have we're going to disappear. And I was saying nothing's going to happen. The sun's going to come up. And the sun's going to go down. But we're in a time of change, and when we look back at that moment in time in December 2012, that's going to be like the like the 9-11 date. It's going to be a line in the sand, and we're in this renovation time. But what I have seen— Renovation? It sounds like the, the roof is going to come down. I mean, what, what, well, yeah, how can— That's how you renovate a house. You, uh, think you start at the top down, but I, I, I don't want to scare people. I want to tell them that I—, I I was on your show, and I've said this before, and I was at the conspiracy bookstore on a book signing some time ago, and I said the same things. What's happening now is a renovation. A lot of bad things are going on. A lot of bad people have been exposed. Look how many, uh, you know, manipulators of money funds and whatnot have been brought to justice. Uh, Not enough for my my, my opinion. It's ongoing. the, The point is this, that we're in this state of flux, this renovation time. And not to scare people, but to say, we're going to get through this. This is my message. But we're going to see some horrific things. I've had a vision where the White House is going to be washed out or flooded. I said that on your show years ago. I've had visions of Africa shrinking in size. When I spoke to some people from Nigeria, I found out that the coastal plain around Africa is almost at sea level. I did not know that ahead of time, which means that the continent of Africa is going to shrink, as I saw it in this vision because the oceans are going to rise. And the reason they're going to rise is because of the crust fluctuating. And that's why we're going to see tsunami and earth changes and volcanic activity on the increase. And we're going to see more of it, but we're going to have a good time getting through this. But we've got to stick together. I'll tell you more about that after the break. Douglas James Cottrell, Canada's Edgar Casey, some call him. I would concur. Back with more in a moment. Don't you dare go away. Welcome back. Dr. Douglas James Gattrell is with us. His uh, book, The New Renaissance, A Prophecy of 2012 and Beyond. Uh, and obviously, you know, we're, we're, um, we are beyond 2012, but many of the uh, things that we are that we're concerned about back in uh, December 2012, we're still concerned about, and they're sort of looming out there on the horizon. Uh, and, you know, we always say we don't want to alarm people, but how can one not be alarmed uh, when, you, when you look at the newspaper and see what's going on? Uh, out there geopolitically, uh, uh, or, or whether it's uh, you know the climate. Uh, anyway, D- Douglas, I want to I want to go back to the the pole shift. I know I I, I asked you about solar storms, and we'll we'll, we'll get around to that. But uh, the, a pole shift. Do you have a time frame for when this is going to happen? I mean, does it happen instantaneously, uh, or does it take uh, years? How does it happen? Well, I've given it out on your show as before, Richard. It's when the planets align in a V-shape, and we have uh, the moon in front of the Earth, the Earth with uh, the sun behind it. And some astrologer people or people who look at the sky say, this is going to happen, or it's come close before, and it's going to come up in November. So whether it's this November or a year from now, whether these influences, they might be time-legged, we're talking immediate future. I'm not trying to scare anyone. The book I wrote was two or three years ago, and we uh, we laid out uh, these in, these incidences and this timing is in the, the timing is in the sky, so it's here. This is not going to be like the when I was in California talking to the movie stars back in the middle '80s. It was yeah yeah California is going to slip off into the ocean someday somewhere. No, it's not like that. It's now. It's now the time. The immediate future. Things. We're in the foreseeable future in our, in our lifetime. 
in my next in this next decade. I'm not saying this is exactly it, but the things I've seen, uh, if we look at uh, the activity in Yosemite Park, Old Faithful and the volcanic activity there, it's going off the scale. And I had a vision of a huge cloud of smoke and fire and lava coming eastward so that an air, uh, in an airfield couldn't fly. And there is such, in uh, that vicinity, there is such a, a geographical layout of that. So we're talking now. We're, we're, and so now's the time to be prepared. We talk about the gold how does one? Sorry, but how does one prepare for a pole shift? I mean, how does one survive that, let alone prepare for it? <clears throat> okay, well, the, the pole shift, uh, you know, right now, and again, on your show, Richard, you and I have talked about things, and you've been at on a leading edge and, and discussions, a lot of things we've talked about. Uh, right now, the North Pole is racing towards Russia at 40 kilometers a year. We talked about the wobbling of the Earth a long time ago, which was uh, magnetic 5 to 15 degrees. I, fly, I used to fly planes. So we're talking about a magnetic shift, but now we're talking that the North Pole is moving, progressing towards the West, People have had dreams not connected to the east. You mean towards Russia? Towards Russia. Sorry, I'm, I'm looking from Canada and moving west. The point is that it's it's tip, it's tipping. The sun, the polarity of the sun, north and south, is flipping. We know that the north is now rotating towards the south, and the south will catch up to the north. We know that it's it's out there. That's now. part of this uh, the, that eleven year solar cycle. Is that what right. we're talking about? This is a precursor because the Earth has a huge gravity. Never mind solar flares and all the other uh, strange things. I was on your show when I said there were going to be six sunspots in a, in a straight line that showed up, and that happened. I didn't believe it myself until I saw the evidence. And by the way, uh, my model's faith is is built upon belief, and beliefs built upon evidence. So everything I say has to be evidence. And there are people out there saying you can't see the future. Well. I beg to, beg to differ. I can see the future. But we're getting back to this pole shift. How do we survive it? Move inland. 200 uh, miles, not kilometers, miles from the East Coast. Move inland. We're going to see the St. Lawrence open up. We're going to see more activity in Montreal, more volcanic activity. There's six volcanoes down there. Didn't you tell me on, on, a, on a show years ago that the that. falls are going to reverse? That's right, too. If what all we need is that 113 or 117 foot shift in the escarpment, and Lake uh, Ontario is going to go into Lake Erie, which is a very shallow lake. We're talking Niagara Falls here, folks. Niagara Falls, yes, uh, in Canada. And so we're going to see it go uh, towards the west, as we know now, and it's going to drain down the Mississippi Valley, uh, Lake McMichigan, et cetera. So the, the pole shift is going to happen. How to prepare for it is to do the standards. Have a food supply in the house for six to eight months or more. Have some gold coins, silver coins, or semi-precious, precious jewelry, portable property, if you will. Uh, own your own property. Have a place where you can grow food if you want to move out in the country. I did this in 1979. I took my family out towards Orangeville, Shelburne area in preparation for this. So I'm putting my money where my mouth is. Uh, my family's all grown up now, and I'm back in the city, and I'm traveling the world and Europe and, and South America, et cetera, doing whatever the good Lord wants me to do. But the point is that how you prepare for this is... Get folks together who think in accord like you do and have a tribal mentality. Get people together you can count on. You yeah, you can't it. do it on your own. No. You need, you need, you know, a doctor, a butcher, a candlestick maker, all of that. You know, you need to, uh, to build a community so that you've got people with special skills. And there are people now in the Pyrenees and other places I've been there that have communities. They're disjointed and they're full of politics and they have their own views on things and maybe I'm the man to come around and help them 
have a singleness of purpose as we go uh, forward talking about the law of one, which is the way out of all this mess. But the point is that be prepared. Don't just say this is a 2,500-year uh, cycle or, well, this is not going to happen in my lifetime. It will happen sometime. It is happening right now. When, when my son Doug and I put this book together, New Renaissance, he had an angel or a voice say to him, hurry up and get it done. Because what's in this book, and I'm going to tell you uh, on different pages, things that we've done on page 105, we talk about the Syria problem that's happening today in the book three years out from the time we started it. The, the, the book talks about how to prepare for the changes that are coming. It talks about where safe places are in the world. It talks about the flooding. There have, other, there have been other people out there who have talked about flooding, and I'm not, you know, I don't want to step on anybody's toes, but they have been forecasting the same things. Forearmed is forewarned. Evidence is look around, read, look, find out yourself. Don't bury your head in the sand. I'm an oracle. I'm giving you the future. If it doesn't happen, the worst you can be out is you stock up on some things or you prepare. How many people would perish in, in such a cataclysmic event? Well, you know, somewhere, what was it, uh, the Catholic Church had those predictions of the three children. and uh, The third secret of Fatima. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I believe it's going to say not one, but possibly two-thirds of the population will disappear if things are on the same course. The Hopi Indians, remember that famous little two-way chart that uh, was carved or painted on the stone? It talks about the descent of human race into oblivion or a possibility that we can, work by working together, save ourselves. I think that's likewise saying 50-50. A huge percentage of the people. I'm not trying to scare anybody. I hope that whatever the numbers are, that they are small. In my uh, institution in uh, Hamilton, Many Mansion Spiritual Center, we pray for the world. We pray for peace. We pray for God to lessen the, uh, the changes that are taking place. All right, let me grab a call here. Darlene is in Hamilton, Ontario. Darlene, you're on the air. Go ahead. Yes, um, I have uh, two questions. Uh, one is, is the law one a reference to Jesus? And two is, uh, can you help uh, me find, or how do you find a physical location, an area versus, let's say, street signs? I'm not sure I understand the second question. An area, let's say, street uh, side. Do you, you, you want information yeah, on how to remote like view? You want to learn well, how to remote view? a physical place, let's say, uh, um, a physical place like a forest, a field. If you can see that versus actually knowing a location, a street location. So. Well, you can do both. You know, there's not a problem with giving, uh, having information from the divine. Uh, I'm a Christian. I belong to organizations that are serious uh, research in the metaphysical aspects of uh, Jesus to Christ. Uh, wherever I go, Mary watches over me, and I'm not a Catholic. I've been in basilicas, and I've sat in the Pope's chair by, uh, with a great honor by uh, Catholic people. Uh, wherever I go, I'm sort of watched over by the Holy Family. What do you, okay, let me ask you about the... the um, we'll get into this a little, a little bit later as well, but the, the law of one, what is that in a nutshell? Well, it goes back to the ancient spiritual practices, which is what uh, Jesus was talking about. We're all one. We can look at the Trinity and we, and we understand that there is a hierarchy, the Father, the Son means ourselves, and the Holy Ghost is that interdimensional beings that we might want to call spirit or angels or 
ghosts even, if you will. But the point being is that we're all one. And the spiritual world and the physical world is all one. So the, the point is that the law of one gets back to the original golden rule that we are all one, that we take care of each other. And every spiritual master that I've ever looked at or studied or saint has said the same thing. And if you read the words of Jesus the Christ, it's the same. Take care of each other. Don't do any harm to one another. Love one another. So in, in investigating the spiritual aspects and the law of one is getting back to that. Stick together. Help each other. When disaster strikes, go and help. Don't sit there you know, and, and sort of say, well, there's nothing I can do. So the law of one is a practical spirituality. It's an action-oriented spirituality, but it's a spiritual journey which says no one can stand between you and God Almighty. You have a direct approach to God uh, as the universal let, mind. Let me, let me talk about that mindset, though, for a moment. If and when uh, the Shinola hits the fan, and let's say it's a pole shift, and let's say two-thirds of the Earth's inhabitants perish, and it's, at least in the early going, every man for himself. And, uh, you know, things I, I believe, maybe the first 24 hours, 48 hours, people will have that sense of responsibility for their neighbor. But once the hunger pangs set in, well, once they run out of fuel, once they know that that guy down the street has six months' worth of water supply locked in his barn, I'm... My concern is, my belief is, things are going to get nasty in a hurry. I mean, all of the civility is going to be quickly washed away. How are we going to get from every man for himself, full onset panic mode, to this law of one? Are we just, is it going to be uh, an evolution of human consciousness? Uh, how are we going to arrive at that? It's already taking place now, Richard. Uh, wherever there's a disaster, you'll see huge aid going to different places in the world. This is the biblical prophecy coming true where soldiers will turn their weapons into plowshares, which means that they'll put down their weapons. Think of it. The military are the best equipped, the strongest. They have the will. They have the leadership. They have transportation. They have vehicles to go and rescue people. What's going to happen is warfare will stop. This is going to be a really good thing, and that's why we call it our renovation. In this time, and people have seen Manhattan flooded, they have seen the eastern seaboards flooding. Edgar Casey predicted that Virginia Beach would be destroyed and his, uh, his uh, institution would be destroyed. You have to come back and discover it or show everybody where the vault was. We are going to survive this, but for that time, if we're prepared... Human nature being human nature, this is why I'm saying you have to have a tribal mentality where everybody is sort of helping one another. I don't think it's going to be everybody on a rampage. I'm sure there will be, I mean, I'm a realist as well. I'm sure there will be groups of people who are hungry going out and, and trying to slaughter people. That's why to move out of the cities or to have a place where you're self-sufficient is very important. This is going to be a re reverting back to an agricultural base situation. We're almost already there. I mean, we're in super warp speed the way we're going right now with everything, information, people, decisions, the hatred, uh, murders, uh, all those things are being, all those negative things in the world are being accented right now. People like me who are writing books like this one and people like this later asking questions, we really want to find our way out of it. Don't forget, as above, as below, the spiritual world above, God Almighty is ordaining that we're going to go through this change. 
these changes. This is not the first time. This will be the fifth world change that's happened. There have been four previous world calamities, including Atlantis and, and Lemuria. That's Mayan prophecy, is it not? And, and I believe the Hopi as well? You can go, and well, you can go back to all the, uh, all the different civilizations, and our good friend Robert Appel is an authority on lost civilizations. They all have the same stories about a big flood that happened, and we survived, and we grew to what we are today. So uh, believe in God Almighty. Don't, don't think that we're on our own here. And the children that are coming into the world now, especially if you look on the top of their head, they have two swirls in their hairline. These are master children. And what does that mean? Well, these are, these are souls that are highly developed, and they are smart, they know how to cooperate, and they're going to be the generation that gets us out of this mess. I'm just trying to uh, um, imagine. <laughs> I've got two delightful twin boys. I'm uh, sure they're going to be I haven't checked their head first. I'm just trying to reconcile that with all the pee-pee caca talk at the, at the dinner table, and they, these, are, these are our spiritual saviors. <laughs> Lord help us. <laughs> well, let's look back a little bit. Sometime, not too in the distant, distant past, your parents were looking at the top of your head and saying, this is our baby. Who, who would have thought there would be a master communicator and, and bringing a light into the world like you are, my friend? No, but I, you know, obviously, I'm, I'm in jest, but uh, I will pursue that uh, thread when we come back on the other side. And there will be another side. There will be a tomorrow, at least for now. Douglas James Cottrell with us. The book is The New Renaissance, A Prophecy for 2012 and Beyond. As we talk Earth Changes, stay with us. And we continue to talk uh, about Earth Changes with remote viewer, intuitive healer, Dr. Douglas James Cottrell. Uh, and uh, while everyone is sort of focused on, uh, well, the, the economy, uh, the, the situation in Syria seems to have, I won't say stabilized, but there seems to be at least some hope on the horizon uh, there. But uh, there's seems to be something that we're forgetting about, and that is an event that took place, I guess it's now about 18 months ago. Uh, Fukushima has not gone away. That uh, nuclear disaster is still uh, in full meltdown, even as we speak. And uh, even uh, the, uh, the Japanese government and, and TEPCO, uh, the people running the, uh, the uh, reactor, uh, are basically throwing their hands up, saying... We don't know how to contain this thing, and you know they're 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 trying to to cool the uh, the reactors by pumping in, uh, you know, millions and millions of gallons of seawater. But radiation is like a magnet, right? Everything that touches it becomes poison. So all and all that seawater goes back out to sea, and now we're hearing reports of uh, you know contaminated uh, fish uh, on the west coast of the United States, and and uh, it's it's a scary scenario. And I've read you know people are saying this is. The greatest issue, the biggest problem facing mankind right now, far more important than, uh, you know, who uh, uh, the Obama administration wants to bomb this week. Fukushima will not go away. So let me ask you, uh, Dr. Douglas James Cottrell, uh, I mean, I mean you, you, you've been talking about a polar shift, which may even dwarf Fukushima, but in, this is what we've got t- to deal with right now. What, what are your thoughts on what's happening with the, the radiation there? Well, this is ultimately going to lead to Japan completely shutting down all the reactors and they're not going to have this kind of of energy in the future. There's already a movement, as far as I believe, uh, and have seen in Japan to stop this. Uh, I think this is going to continue. There are prophecies to say that, you know, the fish in the sea, you won't be able to eat them. Uh, All the sea is going to go black. Uh, This is one of the omens that the time is coming, the end times or Armageddon. 
Uh, this is not going to go away. I don't see the place blowing up, but I can see Osaka sinking down. So I think something is going on underneath uh, Japan, and it's either going to divide the uh, island in half, or it's going to sink. Uh, this is what I'm looking at right now as, as I'm on your show. So I, I have no solution, of course, because I'm not trained that way, but what I'm seeing is that indeed this going down or this cooling down, this sinking is going to stop something, but the poison is going to continue. And I, I'm afraid that this is going to be the fulfillment of one of the prophecies that huge areas of the sea is going to be contaminated, as you've just mentioned a moment ago. But the the result of this will be everybody looking at their reactors and, and Japan's going to shut them down. Chernobyl, Chernobyl is still cooking away. It's going down too. There's still a meltdown going on there. My friend Joe Eichenhoff, for years and years ago, saw this as a, as first of all, he saw atomic explosion near Moscow or near Russia, and he foresaw the event, and he also said this is not going to go away. It's still percolating. It's still causing problems. This is a, this is a serious one because it's on the dime right now. So what I can say about it is it's going to result in all of the nuclear reactors shutting down, and something's going to happen where there's going to be some some changes in the strata, which is probably going to make this thing sink underwater. To what end, I don't know. Wow. Other than that, how was the play, Mrs. Lincoln? This is, <laughs> uh, this is not a good, uh, a good uh, scenario we're dealing with. So, I mean, Fukushima, uh, uh, obviously, uh, if, if the pole shift doesn't get us, Fukushima will. Well, let's, let's look at it this way. These things are happening for our good. And what, uh, as much as this is a, a bitter pill to swallow, uh, these things are happening to change what is possibly going to happen to us. And I think in the end, this is a good thing. People have seen Japan uh, sinking. Ross Peterson made predictions about that. Uh, he actually said that it would be like a, a, a bowl of ice. You push down on one side and the other side comes up. And this is what's going to happen when Japan and the Pacific Rim called the Ring of Fire goes down. Things are going to be really lively on the west coast of North and South America. I have seen everything west of the Rockies disappearing, including the Jewel of the North, as a voice said to me. What's the Jewel of the North, I wondered? Alaska. Disappearing so, under the waves. Disappearing. Wow, this so, is starting to sound like the day after tomorrow, or... Uh... Well, you know, this is what I've seen, and, and you know, again, uh, many times on your show, we've said things and they've come true. In the book, The New Renaissance, I'm, I'm quoting from page 105 about Syria, uh, the riots in the streets and the social collapse of the U.S. is on page 120 and 121. The gold standard and the police uh, escalating and raising fines and nickel and diming us, which is right now occurring. That's on page uh, 114. Talking about the New Renaissance, the New Renaissance uh, prophecy book. of 2012 and beyond. These are prophecies made in this book, and that's why it's so important for people to get the book to read it. Forearmed is forewarned. And the foreword in here, um, and the summary actually, I, I say it, I take responsibility. If I'm wrong, the worst that's going to happen is that you'll be prepared to be prepared, and when things go wrong, you'll survive and thrive. So it's important, not just from me, but there are many people talking about these things, but you and I on your show have been chipping away at these things, giving out important broadcasts, you know, it's like the Oracle, pardon me if I hit the microphone, uh, about these different things that are happening. And many people are preparing, they're, they're, 
they're collecting, they're getting together, they're starting associations, and there's law. Yeah, they're, they're called survivalists, and they're being you know they're well, being ridiculed and pilloried in the mainstream press for being a bunch of wackos. I mean, uh, well, I don't know that I would go so far as to train my you know my boys to. Uh, you know, to uh, to assemble and disassemble and clean an AK-47, well, that's, but... Well, Richard, that's a whole other thing. No, no, it's, I mean, we've repelled the long gun uh, laws in this country. It must be a reason for that. Uh, Good I, point. I, I don't have, I don't have uh, any intentions of, of farming myself because I believe love is the way, not violence. From Mahatma Gandhi to myself, we're talking about love is the way, get together and help. So to be prepared is to figure out ways and means on how to survive. And not to believe that we're going to be destitute. We're not going to be in a desert. Uh, we're not going to be, you know, uh, in great difficulties. The people on the coast will be. All right. Well, uh, there's an old Russian proverb when it comes to, you know, dealing with hard times. And that is, uh, be friends with the wolf, but keep one hand on the axe. Let's take a time out. Douglas Cottrell stays with us t- talking earth changes here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us, if you please. All right, there's another show going on here when the red light goes out, and sometimes we forget. <laughs> uh, we're, we're having such a good visit, Richard. D- Dr. Douglas James Cottrell is uh, with us. Uh, we're talking earth changes here on the program, and, you know, it, it sounds almost not trite, but when we're talking about, you know, the potential for a pole shift that could wipe out two-thirds of the Earth's inhabitants, or we're talking about, uh, you know, the, uh, Fukushima going China syndrome on us uh, and, and poisoning our oceans for millions of years. Uh, and then to shift gears now and talk about the economy, it's, it's almost trite. But that's what's, what, what, what people are staring in the face every morning when they get up, is the economy. So, uh, and again, you know, if you listen to the mainstream media, everything is honky-dory, or at least we're on the mend, and I don't believe it. I'd like to get your take on it as, a, as an intuitive, as a remote viewer. Do you believe, as I do, that we are on the, the precipice of a major worldwide depression? Uh, I would call it inflationary influences are really here. They're hidden. Uh, we're in a situation where America is now going into a third world economy. They, uh, I had a, a vision where the American dollar was just like, like you put a dollar in a washing machine, it was just washed away. Uh, the U.S. buck is, is in big trouble. It's being supported artificially. Uh, the power shift, as I said on your show some time ago, is back to China and India. And now China's in difficulty. So we're looking at the whole world economy as, as being a mix-up of people printing money, greedy so-and-sos taking advantage, uh, callous activity. They don't, nobody really cares about the, the ordinary person, so to speak. That's not really true because there are people they care, but using that as, as, as a, uh, a situation of, of expl- explanation. It comes down to the thing. We're in, we're in a collapse. Uh, America's in huge trouble. Uh, artificially, um, uh, people have seen gold being knocked down every Monday morning, 10 or $20. Uh, There's definitely a manipulation going on there. Like never before. When I was in the, in the late 70s, uh, I played the commodities with a partner. You never saw what's happening now. It was unheard of for the open manipulation of the commodity markets, especially gold. So what are people doing? Well, the, the uh, so-and-sos are filling their own pockets at the expense of everybody else, and they seem to be able to get away with it, and nobody seems to have the ability to stop it, which means we are in, like the old Roman Empire, we're in the, the throes of the end times economically. We are in great difficulty. That's why I'm saying silver coins, gold coins, semi and, pre- and precious jewels, have portable property, get out of debt. 
get out of debt at all costs, and then you'll be free. Otherwise, people are going to take things away from you, and, and you, you will be barren. You will be, you will be suffering. Uh, take control of your destiny. What, what, what? Uh, you're not, uh, uh, you know, here to dispense financial wisdom, but uh, necessarily. But I mean, w- what percentage do you think uh, of your holdings should be in gold? All of it? Some of it? Twenty percent? Fifty percent? Well, I, I would think a, ma- a major lion's share should be in coins. Uh, you know, one can't be foolish because when you have your your uh, money in uh, in metal, it doesn't make interest. It doesn't grow. You know, you're kind of taking your talons and burying them in the ground. So I would think 25% should be kept safe. Know that. And then you should be in situations where my good friend Jim Sinclair, who is a, owns a big mining company in Africa, keep liquid. If you have shares, take them away from your broker. Put them in your, uh, in your locker in your house. Don't let other people have your property. And uh, so you have, you have some coins. You have some pre- precious metal whatever at hand you have cash a little bit maybe in your house but you have all your investment vehicles close at range you don't have to go somewhere and get them now i'm not a financier all the information i'm giving is based on psychic or intuitive information it should not relied upon as medical or financial advice but it's offered for informational purposes only so people would do these things. They can get people much more knowledgeable than I to, to take care of that. People want to know more about what I've got to say. They can look at my website, douglasjamescottrell.com. They can follow me on Twitter and Facebook and get some more information on that. When I was a, I was prepared tonight to say, hey, Richard, we have a brand new website. We're relaunching it. But like all things, one has to learn how to be patient. I think our website will be ready in the next day, two or three. So it's douglasjamescottrell.com. There'll be more information about this. But... Have some coins in your pocket. Have some groceries stocked up. The most the most uh, expensive commodity in the future will be fresh water. I believe fresh that. Water. Yes, I believe that. Been saying that for years. Anyway. How does how does one prepare though for for uh, what could be you know lights out for the next generation? I mean, you, you you can store six months worth of food and water, but I mean, this thing could be uh, going on for a very long time before we come out the other side, before we embrace the law of one, or before you know there is some sort of semblance of civil order again. Well, as Ross Peterson said, humankind always does the right thing, but for the wrong reasons. We are, whether we know it or not, preparing through this time of extremes. I call this a time of extremes. Ross Peterson has done the same. Edgar Casey did the same, and so did Paul Solomon. That's where we get the title, I'm the last of the sleeping prophets, because I'm the only one alive. We've all said these things, that we're going through this time of uh, chaos. It's a chaotic time. But out of chaos comes order. I'm not talking about a new world order. I'm talking about how to get along with each other. This is why the law of one doesn't matter what terms or, or, or what we believe, we are going to learn by necessity how to get along with one another. In the future, I have seen the major trading routes east and west, from the east to Spain, and from Spain back. And then from Spain, the trade routes would come to North America. The North uh, Russia is it was a straight line cut off. The oceans are going to rise. They're going to flood the plains of Spain in the north. I saw San Sebastian flooded. I also saw two rivers that surround Barcelona uh, becoming lakes. So the Mediterranean is going to rise. I've seen all these things, but it wasn't like blood and guts. It was slow, methodical, but giving people time enough to run away, but it happened. So what we're looking at, in spite of ourselves, 
we're going to learn how to get along and we're going to stop this violence, this negativity, this hatred, and all the things that are going on in some really bad places in the world. It's going to stop. Well, I think it was Einstein who said, you know, the Third World War will, will be fought with nuclear weapons and the Fourth World War will be fought with sticks and stones. So is it, is it like we're going to uh, – we're going back to the Dark Ages uh, and we won't have, we won't have uh, you know, all our digital devices. We won't have, we won't have jet aircraft. We won't have uh, – a lot of them – as you say, we're going back to sort of an agrarian, what, feudal-type society? Well, think of it this way. When the world flipped over last time – those animals that were living in tropical paradises, when the world flipped, the atmosphere stayed in the same place. And so we had prehistoric animals frozen solid while they were eating grass. The mastodons, yeah, in the exactly. Arctic Circle with this buttercups the, in their mouth or whatever they were. Exactly. This is the evidence of what happened because you went from, let's say, 30, 40 degrees Celsius plus to minus 50 degrees Celsius, instant freezing. So those places that are going to flip under the atmosphere, uh, that the temperature change, there's going to be disaster. But the other places are going to survive. Now, you know, just, to, just to look at it from, I had a thought in my head a moment ago, to look at it as the world flips or changes, uh, what's going to happen is that land masses are going to come up and land masses are going to go down, especially around the, around the, close, around the uh, coastal lines. But we are going to survive. Wherever you are in the world... Because what's going to happen is the, earth, the sun is going to rise from the west. Many people have seen this, including myself. And it's going to be okay. We're not going to fly off the planet. We're not going to disappear. We're going to be okay where we are. And I think what you've alluded to is that we're going to have a lot of uh, sunspot activity. We're going to have lots of warning how to be prepared. We shouldn't be relying upon our uh, smartphones and tablets and uh, iPads and computers, we should get outside and be prepared in a hands-on way. Are your visions uh, uh, intensifying as we approach these cataclysms? Well, I'm seeing more and more. The last uh, uh, image I had was that the uh, Canadian currency was going to be changed every few months because counterfeiters were going to be able to manipulate uh, the Canadian money and the government had to keep ahead of them. Uh, the the other uh, earth changes I've seen have been in different countries. So, yes, it is. It's like I'm given a little bit every now and then, and that's why it's important to follow me on Twitter. And when we get our new mailing list uh, thing, we're doing a complete renovation on our site to keep in contact with, uh, with me, not because I want you to. I'm going to come and do a lecture in Toronto uh, very shortly, so keep in touch with me. I'll talk more about this. But keep in touch with me because I'm going to start saying this is what my vision is. This is what I've seen because they come true. And I'm, I'm gutsy enough to tell people. And I've taken a lot of ridicule. And you and I have talked about this before. I've suffered prejudice for most of my life. But now, over these 39, 40 years, time and time and time again, things have come true. And that's why it's important to get this book, The New Renaissance. Stay in touch with me and listen to me next time I'm on your show or every once a year or whenever we come back. Are you fearful at all? No. Why not? I would. I am. Well, I'm, I'm, a thir I'm 63 years old. I have grandchildren. I love them dearly. Uh, I have uh, children. Uh, my eldest daughter, Sherry, passed away because of her complications about six or seven years ago. But that's the whole reason I got involved in the spiritual world, leaving the, new, the Toronto Star to take up this honorable prof uh, profession as a prophet. But the point is that, no, I believe God's watching over me. This is what's going to drive us back from the top down. 
we're going to survive. God is watching over us all the time, God Almighty. But what kind of future are our children and grandchildren going to have? I think they're going to have a more peaceful one. I don't think the, the possibility of, of nuclear war and, and us killing each other is going to exist and things that are going on in Iran and Iraq. They're going to have a hard life, though. Well, in some places in the world, but in other places it's going to be paradise. It's going to be okay. Because what happens? You remember when those tornadoes went through Barrie uh, a few years Just ago? Just north of Toronto here, Just yes. North, and it wiped out a lot of stuff. Do you know that was the Kickstarter that got us, that got us out of that really bad times in the middle 80s? The economy boomed, and from that point until 95 or 96, it, we got out of a terrible situation. 95, the next shift came. All these cycles are predictable. Prophets, oracles, people like me come along and see things, but so does the ordinary person. And that's why it's important to develop yourself spiritually so that you can develop your own spiritual gifts of being able to interpret your dreams or being able to be intuitive or let God bless you with some sort of direction or information. Are are people coming to you, people who previously didn't believe that they were intuitive at all and are now telling you, I'm having these weird dreams. Absolutely. There's a lady in, uh, in Michigan. She's a, uh, she's a trial attorney. Came and had a reading, or sorry, t- came and took the course on how to do readings and, pr- and accurately predicted that gold was going to fall down $400, which it did. And now she's in the same vision. She's seeing gold is going to go back up $400. The time wasn't given, but that's exactly what's happened. She was right on the money, and she's an ordinary person, a trial lawyer more analytical person uh, in your life you could never meet. And again, my motto is faith is built upon belief and belief is built upon evidence. People say, what about UFOs and aliens and whatever? I say, well, we're all God's children. If God created the heavens and the earth, then God must have created other beings in faraway places. God has created us. We are going to survive. DouglasJamesCottrell.com Keep in touch. Sign up for my email newsletter. Follow me on Twitter. Check out my Facebook page. And buy this book, The New Renaissance. Well, uh, as you say, things on the other side may uh, may be just wonderful, but uh, the road ahead is pretty rocky. I hope to God that you're wrong, but knowing you as I do for these past nearly 20 years and, and knowing your, your record, uh, I fear you are correct. And that, quite frankly, scares the hell out of me. Please don't be afraid. We, you know, good people will survive. All right, Douglas, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, Richard. God well, bless you and your family. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett, the website richardserrett.com, and as always, follow the truth. Hey, how are you? Beautiful, beautiful uh, weather we're enjoying here uh, as we get into uh, autumn. Always a... Uh, uh, a special time of year for me. You know, I, even at my uh, uh, age, I still get up this time of year and I'm thinking, you know, it's time to go back to school. I don't know what it is. It's something that stays with you. Some, you know, September, just going back to school. Had the boys out uh, at an apple farm, uh, maybe an, out, an hour outside of Toronto, uh, picking apple, uh, you know, time to bake the pies, uh, the harvest is uh, now in full throttle. Uh, great time of year, and we're getting some wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, weather, what they, they used to call Indian summer, although I don't know if that's politically correct anymore. Um, and I don't know why it... Uh, if there's anyone who knows why we call it an Indian summer, I'd be uh, uh, curious to know. However, uh, this has always been one of my favorite times of, uh, of the year. Uh, always, always uh, a pleasure as well to welcome 
a good friend into the studio who sits across from me as we speak, Victor Vigiani, the executive director of Z-Land News Network. Victor, how are you? Just fine, thanks. It's always a pleasure to be here. And uh, for you, this time of year is spelling sort of the end of the golf season. I know you're uh, an avid golfer. Yeah, winding down, and eventually that'll the course will close, and we go back into sort of a hibernation, and then we resurrect ourselves in April again. The other thing that you're busying yourself uh, these days, you're, you're going out and you're uh, you know visiting some of the local libraries and and uh, and talking about UFOs. How's that going? That's great. Uh, actually, just finished a presentation last week at the Lakeview Public Library in Mississauga, and got another presentation presentation there, part two, coming up in October. And we've got a larger one coming up at the Central uh, Library in Mississauga. Um, and we'll be putting out dates about that pretty soon, too. And then we're, it's just sort of a, it's a, it's a demand thing. Uh, people are asking for it. And uh, the, it started off in a very small way. And now it's kind of growing. And it's sort of beyond the expectations that I set for myself earlier. So what we're, People are asking yeah. for this. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Why? Well, I, I think part of it is because we're not talking to the choir. Um, in, initially, when I first started doing this, you do conferences or whatever, and you speak to people who are pretty well um, proficient in their knowledge of, of the UFO phenomenon. But uh, I set out um, a mandate for myself that I wanted to speak to people who didn't know too much about this. And we began inviting people in small ways to come out and listen to different kinds of uh, presentations that, that, that I present. And oddly enough, uh, that grew. And uh, an audience of, you know, 15 or 20 grew into, you know, 40 or 50. And then one of the other presentations I did about uh, six months ago, there was 97 people just flocked into the doors of uh, uh, the Lauren Park Public Library, and they didn't have any room for them. And these are all people who want to know this stuff. And they're not, uh, you know, experts at it at all. They're just interested. Is there one document, because I know you give a mm -hmm. really effective PowerPoint presentation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is there one document that you splash up on the screen that really rocks the audience, has them just reeling afterwards? Well, two of them, actually. The, 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 the Wilbert Smith memo that states that UFOs are real. And goes on to describe his encounter with people in Washington. That's one that really. This is a Canadian who worked for the Ministry of Transportation, I believe. That's right. And was the guy that was assigning the AM and FM frequencies for radio stations in Canada. Precisely the Department of Transport. Yeah. So he went down to the states, met with some top mucky mucks in the mm -hmm. military brass, mm -hmm. and basically they revealed to him that UFOs were real. That's right. That's one document that really catches people uh, kind of off guard because they don't think that Canada is sort of front and center with this issue the way it really is. What about Roswell? Uh, the Roswell stuff, uh, other than the, the other than verbal testimony that I have on record, there really aren't any uh, specific documents that we have. But the one big document that I rely on a lot uh, to show to show that the United States government and the CIA has been sort of uh, you know hand in glove and all this is, is a CIA document that says it states blatantly that the CIA will control the media on how they. Um, you know, it d disseminate the information about UFOs. It's a very clear document. It's on their own website, as a matter of fact. And uh, that one catches people off guard, too. They don't really realize that the government has been talking about this stuff for, for well over 60 years, behind the scenes. And uh, I, I try to convince people, or at least enlighten them, about the fact that uh, the United States government, along with the UK government, even Canada, too, have been discussing this stuff behind the scenes for, for well over 60 years. And that's not something that the average person knows. Well, you know what did it for me? Uh, in, that, in that, you introduced me to uh, the Honorable Paul Hellyer, mm -hmm. uh, who was our, our our defense minister back in the uh, the Pearson uh, government 
in the uh, mid to late 60s, also the deputy prime minister under Trudeau. This was a guy a heartbeat away from being the prime minister of Canada. Mm -hmm. And you were very instrumental in getting him to talk publicly uh, at an event, uh, what, about six years ago, at the University of Toronto, in which here we have the deputy, former deputy prime minister standing up and saying, and, and he repeated this to me in an interview I did with him, that everything we heard, we've heard about Roswell is true. UFO crashes, alien bodies recovered, autopsies, all of that stuff. And he got that, again, from top military people in the United States. That's what rocked my world. Yeah, Paul was one of the individuals that, uh, as far as I'm concerned, is probably most one of the most credible, high-level cabinet officials uh, on the planet that has come forward. And without his testimony, I don't think that uh, a lot of the stuff that we know about UFOs right now would be as credible as, in, in fact, it really is. And Paul's done a, a great job in making himself available to the authorities, specifically in Washington, at the, at the hearings last May. And uh, he's really done a whole lot in his, both in his books and in his testimony and in his uh, conference uh, speaking schedule to, to make right. sure that individuals uh, at the high levels, he's trying to convince people at the high levels to come forward and say, listen, you know this stuff, why not come forward? And one of the really specific things that we kind of looked at uh, at the hearings was uh, Senator Mike Gravel, who um, was on the panel at the citizen hearings, and uh, we'll have more to say about him a little bit later yes, on. Yes, indeed. Well, uh, and the thing that, that uh, really um, um, set Hellier down this road was uh, Philip Corso's book, The Day After Roswell. Mm -hmm. Someone gave it to him, you know, for some nice summer reading at the cottage. Right. He read that book, changed his life, went down to the United States, got confirmation on those things. Uh, and again, it comes back to, to Roswell. And we're talking about something that happened uh, now nearly 70 years ago. And so uh, this is ground zero for a lot of people when it comes to the UFO issue. The, the, uh, yeah, Roswell and, and we are really uh, in, in a race against time because a lot of the people that have firsthand knowledge are passing away. Jesse Marcel Jr. just passed. And, just recently, yeah. Well, there's an individual who who knows better than most about, uh, you know, the... Uh, the race against time, uh, the race with the undertaker, if you will, in terms of getting witnesses uh, who knew about Roswell, who were, with, who were there and have firsthand knowledge to, to, uh, to go on the record. Uh, in fact, he's really made it his, his life work. And we're going to uh, welcome him aboard now. Don Schmidt is the former co-director of the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies, where he served as director of special investigations for 10 years prior to that. He was a special investigator for the late Dr. J. Allen Hynek and the art director for the International UFO Reporter. He graduated from MATC with a degree in commercial art and graduated cum laude from Concordia University with a degree in liberal arts. He's presently taking graduate courses in criminal justice. Schmidt is, uh, Don Schmidt is the author of dozens of articles about UFOs as well as the co-author of two best-selling books, UFO Crash at Ro Roswell, uh, Avon 1991, best-selling Witness to Roswell from New Page Books, The Truth About the UFO Crash at Roswell, and of course he has a, a brand new book uh, that he has co-authored, uh, The Real Area 51, and it's always a pleasure to welcome Don Schmidt back to The Conspiracy Show. Don, how are you? Just fine, Richard, and you as well, Victor. Great to be back with both of you. Thank you. Yeah, glad to have you with us. We wanted to talk about uh, your work in, in uh, interviewing some of the key witnesses and, and documenting what uh, yes. they've had to say regarding Roswell. And here we are, uh, my gosh, 66, almost 67 years later. How many key witnesses are still left? We just lost Jesse well, Marcel, Jr., 
Yes, and that's a prime example of how we're now losing the children of the witnesses at Roswell. I mean, nonetheless, Jess Jr. certainly was a first-hand witness himself, but still, he was only 11 years old at the time. So it, it strikes us all the more ardently that uh, now we're losing the children as well. Um, there's nothing more frustrating and it's never been a case of where people have come forward to us. That's typically a red flag when someone calls or emails us, you know, my father this or my husband this. It's, uh, you know, we're very leery of such open um, approaches on the parts of potential witnesses. But typically they are very reluctant. They're very, you know, aware of their security oaths that they took back in 1947. It's one of the reasons that so many of them have finally just left deathbed testimonies, which are admissible in a court of law here in the United States. So they're accepted as physical evidence. And nonetheless, the frustration, as you mentioned, the race with The Undertaker, and when we finally track down a, a, a crucial individual, and it's taken us this long, and we learn that they just passed away a year ago, or in some cases a month ago. There was one particular case where we called up and we spoke to the wife just as she was returning from the cemetery. Oh, my. And just that close. To... Just that close. And there's nothing more finite, more absolute, and to know that whatever information they possess is gone forever. Now, I, I find it, you know, amusing, but even as appalling that, the skeptics, that they feel that eyewitness testimony is not only unreliable, but they don't consider the very fact that all of our history books are based on nothing more than eyewitness accounts, that the very uh, events that we teach our young people throughout their, their, their schooling is based on eyewitness testimony, that every day people are convicted, are potentially placed, you know, as far as on death row, or, you know, lifetime imprisonment based on nothing more than eyewitness testimony, circumstantial evidence. And yet when it comes to an event where we have interviewed to date over 600 people, either directly or indirectly involved, and a growing legion of deathbed testimony, that I'll talk about not only the recovery of this extraordinary wreckage, this material that defied conventional explanation. The memory material. Uh, the memory material. This, this other material that was, was nigh indestructible, nearly indestructible. And most amazingly of all, the little people, the little men. Invariably, the deathbeds. The way they finally confide to their wives, their children, how I was involved with the recovery. I was at the big hangar when they brought the bodies in. I was at the base hospital when they brought the gurneys in. And as one of the people, one of the witnesses put it, they sure weren't from Texas. So they, they knew, they, they, they made that distinction that they weren't dealing with something biological as far as some type of an experiment. They knew they were dealing with something truly 
off the planet. All right, Don, we'll take a time out. Don Schmidt with us, who has co-authored Inside the Real Area 51, startling new evidence or eyewitness accounts, along with the Thomas J. Carey. Uh, in studio, Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network as we talk about Roswell deathbed confessions and beyond here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Deathbed confessions from Roswell. Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network in studio and on the line, uh, Don Schmidt the uh, co-author of Inside the Real uh, Area 51, and also uh, a man who has organized uh, the three only archaeological dig projects at the actual Roswell crash debris field. They were conducted in 1989, 2002, 2006. And the second effort, that would be in 2002, became the central theme of the highest-rated show up till that time in the 10-year history of the Sci-Fi Channel, The Roswell Crash, Startling New Evidence, which also resulted in the book The Roswell Dig Diaries, of which he was a contributing author. Uh, Don, any other plans to go back to Roswell? Is there anything left in the ground there, do you think? Well, interesting that you should mention that without telegraphing specific dates. Uh, We are going back before the end of the year with our fourth project. So, yes, indeed, we have, a, we have three archaeologists and then geologists that will be leading four separate teams, and we will be focusing on specific areas that have uh, demonstrated uh, great promise uh, throughout the last year and a half. And uh, we even have a fifth one planned uh, into next year if uh, funding is available. And so what would you say the is the search most, for the Holy Grail continues? The most uh, interesting, important artifact that you've uncovered in any of those digs? Have there been? For me, it was the confirmation of, of the furrow, the gouge. The fact that witnesses independent of one another had taken us to a specific location where something had clearly skipped across the ground. And they described it about 10 feet wide, hundreds of feet long. And it's my contention, as even based on the press release that the Army Air Corps put out on July 8th of 1947, that the rancher had stored the disc. Well, in this case, it was the largest piece that he recovered from the debris field. Uh, We're talking about Ranch Foreman W.W. Mac Brazo. And he had dragged a large piece behind his pickup truck and stored it in a livestock shed about three miles to the, to the north of this location. I contend that it was the, the piece that created that gouge. And through the, the years of the, uh, the, the rain and the prevailing wind and the cattle and sheep grazing through that area, everything has smoothed over. Well, anyway, in 2002, we were able to bring in a backhoe, a tractor with a large shovel to cross trench, dig through that very location. And wouldn't you know that the shovel would jump, that his ground engineer even would make notation of the fact that the shovel was hitting a pocket of loose sediment. And as it would pull it away, there it was, the symmetrical V, just below the surface, and exactly where the witnesses had described to us the location of that gouge. 
So a weather balloon doesn't make a gouge in the ground of that sort. All right. Uh, we, and, want, let's, uh, let's, we want to talk about uh, some of these witnesses and, and drill down on that. Please. Uh, speaking yes. of archaeological digs. And, and Victor, why don't you kick it off and uh, talk about uh, some of these witnesses? Yeah, no, no matter what, um, for as long as I've done this, Don, you probably know this yourself, you feel it just as badly as I do. We keep on coming back to Roswell for a number of reasons. And the reasons are as long as they are wide. It just, it just is not going away. That's the, that's the basic fact of the matter. Um, one of the things that really struck me about one of the interviews you did, and uh, I've heard you speak about it, and I've also heard other, other um, discussion about uh, this, this young lady at the time, Frankie Rowe, uh, yes, who was sitting yes. around. Yeah, I think I know that's one of your favorite instances because she was relatively young at the time. I believe her dad was part of the, the, the fire department at the time, and she is very clear in her recollection about the uh, military people coming into her house and sitting down at the table. Uh, Precisely. Not, and, yes. and, and saying, well, I'll let you uh, tell the audience what, uh, what she heard the military say to her parents. Well, first of all, her father, as you mentioned, Victor, was part of the Roswell Fire Department, and they had received a call from whether a civilian source or someone north of Roswell. This was not the debris field. This was another site where something more relevant, something more important was reported, and that was a downed aircraft. And they uh, attempted to go out with a water tanker. And her father, Dan Dwyer, would describe to the family that when they arrived, there were, was the remains of a ship, a small pod, a small capsule. There were bodies strewn about, and most fantastic of all, there was a survivor. There was one actually walking. And he would mention this to the family, and that no sooner than they had arrived, the military started to arrive at the same location. And took them off to one side and warned them not to say another word, allowed them to return back to Roswell. But it was that evening that Frankie, from her bedroom, would overhear a conversation involving an officer by the name of uh, Arthur Philbin, who we confirmed, mm -hmm. and a number of other MPs, and overheard the threats to her mother, her father wasn't home yet for the day, but the mother was told that if they ever said another word about the incident, that they would kill their children. Well, that left such an impact on Frankie that she still, be, she still gets emotional over this. And I think as a very you know, wonderful you know, uh, act of closure was that Philbin's own son arrived at her home just this last year, unannounced, with a bouquet of flowers. He presented it to Frankie. He said, if my father were still alive, I'm sure he'd want you to have this. As This is our, my family's way of saying we are so sorry that my father was ordered to do that, but my father was a good soldier. He did what he was told, and that's all he did. It was the only reason he did that. But we want you to have this as a gesture and ask for your forgiveness. Oh, my God. I mean, after all those years that the family would even, you know, acknowledge, you know, that, yes, that's how my father was. That's how he was. He was a big, 
you know, burly man, 250 pounds, six foot four, booming voice, walk into a room and, you know, with his Brooklyn accent, he was a former New York State police officer. And again, it's a type of story. How does someone make that up? Why would someone make that up? Why would the family even endorse such a situation, you know, 66 years later and say, yes, and we're sorry that my father had to follow his orders? Amazing, amazing. Yeah, the, the compelling nature of, of the kinds of things that people are coming forward with at this point, and, and the one interview that really kind of caught my, uh, my attention was the Trowbridge uh, interview. Um, and he was, he was front and center in some of the investigation. Uh, tell us about uh, his, his situation. Well, you're talking uh, uh, First Lieutenant John P. Trowbridge. He was uh, the, at headquarters. He was an intelligence of the 509th bomb wing, the first atomic bomb squadron in the world at that time, stationed at Roswell. And he was second in command directly under uh, Major Jesse Marcel, who was head of intelligence at Roswell at that time. Now, Trowbridge's son, we met uh, his son, who's a doctor, and as well as Jack, as he's called. We took them out to the debris field, and... um, I will admit, though, Victor, I have, I cannot put his story, I can't place it as far as, or insert it into the chronology of events, mm-hmm. because uh, it's mostly the son telling the story that his father was, you know, at the Marcel residence, they were playing cards when Jesse was gone for the day, and he returned late that evening with a car full of the debris. Well, his returning and his stopping at the house, as Jesse Jr. would describe, is, is, is accurate. But even Jesse Jr. has no recollection that anybody else was at the house at that time, especially because it was 2 o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. when he was t- taken yeah. out to the kitchen and there the debris was all scattered on the kitchen floor. Yeah, that's so, when the, uh, the stuff was brought back in the, in the trunk of the Buick, right? That, the, the 48 Buick convertible, correct. Mm-hmm. Or 42, 42 does, Buick convertible. Does Jack Trowbridge claim that he handled the memory material? Yes, he does. And he describes it, you know, in a similar fashion as the others, the memory material. And I, I think it's more likely that he saw the pieces, you know, back at the base at headquarters when Jesse brought material actually to the base. I think he's just confused because they did, yes, they did play cards just as others played cards at the Marcel residence. Do, but, do, you, th- do um, you think, Don, Don, do you think that some of these small discrepancies, be they small or medium or large or whatever the case may be, that some of these discrepancies uh, give uh, way to allowing the skeptics to debunk uh, the, the entire case of Roswell? I mean, and it's as, as spiritless as that sounds, do you think that these discrepancies uh, kind of um, you know, point towards the, the debunkers having some sort of weight in saying really nothing happened? No, I think that the only true leverage or support towards any theory on the part of the skeptics would be if there should be any witnesses to suggest this was something conventional. Precisely. There are no witnesses to this being a weather balloon, a plane, a rocket. Project Bogle, which is the third official Air Force explanation for Roswell, there are no witnesses at all to that explanation. And Trowbridge... I mean, his testimony does indeed support 
the eyewitness accounts that this was something extraordinary. He does describe the Mermi material. Mm -hmm. As to the actual, you know, manner by which he was involved, there are some discrepancies, as there are with other witnesses. Well, the man but is, what, 95 years old? talking about this being extraordinary. Well, this man is, what, 95, 96 years old now? That is correct, Richard. So yes, I think yes. we can allow a 96, 95-year-old man recollecting what happened 67 years ago, a slight discrepancy. Was he playing cards at the base or was he playing cards at the Marcel Ranch? I think, you know, <laughs> that's, you're not going to throw that testimony out based on, on uh, you know, that. Precisely. It's like, um, you know, what, uh, what street were you on when you happened to witness something 65 years ago? What's the memory material for those who, who may, may have heard the term but aren't really familiar? What do we mean by memory material? Well, we're talking about material that was paper thin, practically weightless, that you couldn't cut, you couldn't burn. Uh, there are numerous accounts describing how they even attempted to shoot, fire a bullet through the material. Nothing was able to penetrate this material. Yet you could crumble, you could crease it, you could wad it up into a ball. And when you would place it down onto a smooth surface, it would flow like water. It would just smooth right out to its original shape and size. And we don't even have such material by 2013 standards. And that's the one thing that whenever um, an author, a researcher comes up with an alternative explanation, uh, German flying wing, Soviet, you know, spy plane, um, you know, uh, some type of an atomic experiment gone awry, they, do, they never account for the unusual characteristics of the material. Because everything else still is of conventional manufacture. The materials at Roswell were clearly of something extraordinary because all of the witnesses, all the eyewitnesses who handled the material, who were part of the recovery, who transported the material, who received it at right field as far as for analysis and breakdown, describe this extraordinary advanced technology that, again, defies conventional explanation. Uh, who was Sergeant Homer Rowlett? I, uh, I believe you've interviewed uh, his daughter, Carlene Green. Carlene Green, as well as his son, Larry, Larry Rowlett. Uh, Sergeant Homer Rowlett was a uh, member of the 603rd Air Engineering Squadron. And initially in the Roswell investigation, we paid a lot of attention to the 1395th MP, Military Police Squadron just assuming that the MPs would have been the most actively involved in the recovery and the, the, the cordoning off of the site, the security of the site. And through the years, as we've tracked down more and more people of the 1395th, we realized that, yes, they were used to secure the site, but they were on the peripheral. They would, you know, cordon off the roads. They would have checkpoints in the outlying areas. They were on the outskirts. Whereas the members of the 603rd, the Air Engineering Squadron, engineers, and that's what uh, Sergeant Rowlett was, they were on the inner. They were part of the actual recovery operation. They handled the material. They were witness to the bodies. All right, listen, we'll take and, a time out. When we come back, Don, let's talk about yes. the testimony of Carlene Green, a daughter of Sergeant Rowlett. And uh, keep uh, drilling down as we discuss 
these very important witnesses to Roswell. Don Schmidt, one of the top Roswell investigators in the world. Here with us, Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network in studio. Stay with us. Roswell investigator Don Schmidt stays with us, and his latest, uh, which he co-authored with Thomas J. Carey, is Inside the Real Area 51, The Secret History of Wright-Patterson. Uh, and we've had Don on to talk about that um, uh, before, and we'll probably touch on it again before the hour is through. Right now we're talking about some of the key witnesses uh, to Roswell, uh, the um, UFO crash of uh, 1947, and here we are still talking about it 66 years later. And uh, why? Well, because it, uh, it remains, um, for many, sort of ground zero when we're talking about uh, the world of ufology and the importance of that event cannot be uh, understated. Uh, we were talking about uh, the testimony of Carlene Green, who was the daughter of uh, Sergeant Homer Rowlett, and uh, again, these these were uh, engineers that were on the inside, sort of handling the material in the crash uh, field, the debris field. What did Precisely. Carlene tell you? And just to, uh, have your just have your listeners just to, uh, place themselves in this situation, as in Carlene Green's case, where her elderly father, who had never admitted conceded anything regarding the incident before, was lying on a gurney outside of an operating room just before he was to have heart surgery. And it was a life and death situation. And Carlene very nervously waiting with her father. He was still totally wide awake. And he would wave her down in his weakened condition so she could hear him. And he would describe to her how, sweetheart, do you remember how I was stationed at Roswell back in 1947? Well, let me tell you what really happened. And he would confide to her that he was part of the recovery operation, that it was indeed the recovery of a genuine flying saucer, and that there were little people. There were beings, there were, you know, little men that were not human, that he had seen them, and one was alive. Now, unbeknownst to Carlene, he had already, before going into the hospital, told exactly the same story to her brother Larry. And Larry, you know, you know was able to exchange notes with his sister later that, uh, yes, indeed, their father provided both of them with his deathbed testimony, thinking that he would not have another opportunity. And as his days did dwindle down, that he made sure that his son and daughter knew not only that Roswell was true, but that he was a participant, that he was part of that recovery operation, that he saw it firsthand, that he... It wasn't a case of just repeating what he had heard, but that he indeed had seen, he had carried that information with him his entire life, and finally was able to share it because he felt, what could the government do to him at that time? He only had days left, and he provided deathbed testimony 
that again would be admissible, would be physical evidence in any court of law here in the United States. Don, one of the other things that, I, that I'd like to, um, to, to approach with you, uh, and I'm not sure if it's still the case or not, but in 1996, I, I had a uh, really um, great opportunity to speak with Louise Proctor. And, yes. Yeah. Now, Loretta she, Proctor, yes. Yeah, Loretta Proctor. Um, is she still alive, first of all? Is she still she with us? She is still alive. She's still she's, with us? Okay. Uh, she's almost 100 years old. My goodness, isn't that something? And uh, she's, she's, she's blind, but uh, she's still very sharp. Right. And I, it's, it's, it's interesting you mentioned uh, Loretta, Victor, because I promised uh, a call to her over this past week. So um, I'll say hello for you. Okay. And, and who was Loretta Proctor? Yeah. Yeah. Loretta Proctor and her late husband, Floyd, they lived on the nearest ranch to the ranch that Mac Brazel, it was the foster ranch that Brazel managed. He was the foreman of at that time. And just imagine your nearest neighbor being 10 miles away. Well, Brazel, in an attempt to have someone else look at this strange material, he took it to Floyd and Loretta Proctor. So they were also witnesses to this material, this material that defied conventional explanation. As it also turns out, the Proctor's uh, youngest son, Timothy D., who was seven years old at that time, and being during the summer, no school, uh, D. would spend a lot of time helping Mac with the ranch. So he would, you know, help, you know, herding the sheep and managing uh, the cattle. So he was with Mac Brazel when he actually discovered the debris field. So he was also returning their son back to their ranch. And Tim, Tim would gather up some of the neighbor boys, some of the other ranch boys. And they made their way back out to the debris field. And Loretta to this day still describes how her late son, D, after he returned home, it was as though he had the fear of God scared into him. He was snow white. It was as though he had seen a ghost because the military really shook him up. They really put a, a place to scare into him in such a way that he seldom, if ever, talked about it even to his own family, that they really, really scared him. All right, we'll uh, step away for a moment, come right back with Don Schmidt, Roswell investigator, Victor Vigiani, Zeland News Network, talking about deathbed confessions from Roswell. Back in a moment, don't go away. It's so true when you talk to skeptics, you know, they, they want evidence, they want evidence, and then, uh, I mean, short of having, you know, a piece of the actual craft, you, you, uh, you give them 600 names of individuals uh, who are all telling basically the same story, uh, aspects of the, uh, the story. Saw bodies, saw the craft, handled pieces of the craft, uh, um, helped transport the bodies, saw the bodies, you know, being transported. It's on and on and on and it goes 600 and counting. Uh, then what did the skeptics say in the face of that evidence? Well, eyewitness testimony is not reliable. Well, for Pete's sake, our criminal justice system system is based on... I mean, people have gone to the electric chair based on eyewitness testimony. Are we supposed to... Uh, you know, what do we do with that now? My word. Don Schmidt uh, is here, Roswell investigator. Uh, his brand new book is uh, Inside the Real Area 51. 
And uh, Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network is with us as well. Now, Victor, you were telling me off the air about your conversation with Loretta Proctor. This was, again, a neighbor, the nearest neighbor to uh, the ranch where Mac Brazel, you know, found the uh, found the debris. Yeah. And what did she tell you? Well, basically, it's, it was rather... Uh, I tried to contact uh, Loretta. Uh, actually, I did contact her by telephone. I wanted to go over to, to her place and just speak with her while I was in the area. And uh, she said, well, you can't come over here because the, the roads have been washed out. So, <laughs> I mean, she was just a... That's a common occurrence out there. Oh, for <laughs> sure, yeah. And so I said, well, okay, can you just tell me a little, about, uh, a little bit about what you went through? And, uh, and you and Max, and, and she recounted very, very vividly. And, and, uh, and, you know, some of these elderly folks can really have a way of describing things a, with a specificity that some young people just don't understand. And anyway, she said, yeah, Max brought that stuff over here, and we sat in the front porch, and, and you know, me and Floyd, we looked at that stuff, and it did stuff... We we just could, and she just kept on going on and on about this material. How they tried to crumple it up and, and drive a nail through it, or cut it up somehow. And uh, it, it just impressed me, Don, that you know when someone like that just out of the blue sees something so extraordinary, and when they react to it in the way that Loretta did, um, it just it just. It, there's so much compelling, um, you know, human emotion behind it that um, it just sort of eludes uh, credibility why people don't pay more attention to that kind of testimony. And you take a look at situations like the Phoenix Lights and, and, and the Roswell situation and the Chicago airport. These waves of evidence keep on coming forward and they lap up into the shore and just, you know, they, they just seem to be disregarded by, by media and all of the people who have the capacity to bring this stuff forward it's all just ignored doesn't that frustrate well, let me you? ask if it's if it's also your perception it, it, it to me it, it, it's it clearly appears that they're digging in that the skeptics the scoffers mm-hmm. as though i mean they're becoming more entrenched with the fact that i don't think they've ever been threatened as much as as to their their own ideology mm-hmm. they have placed so much at stake as far as in their position their disbelief their disbelief is basically their religion in all this. And because it has never been so threatened, so challenged before, that they are you know, personally attacking us more than ever. They are attacking the witnesses more than ever. If they're so convinced that nothing is there, that nothing happened, why do they even care? Why do they continue mm-hmm. to challenge and debate and you know, pursue us at every turn? God knows we sure don't pay any attention to what they say and do. Who was Savage Dodson? Uh, Dodson just was um, one of the engineers also. He worked at the hangar, one of the hangars at the other side of the base. And in his case, he really didn't see anything. He just remembered that when he was to report to his hangar, which was near the operations building, that... They were, they were basically told to stay in their barracks, not to report to duty that day. And that he, ne- he immediately sensed and he observed a lockdown on the base, that there was a strong military presence, security presence, that something big had happened. And what also surprised him, that as quickly as it reached that crescendo, it immediately dropped off as though everything had been cleared out that everything had returned to normal, but more specifically that everybody was told not to say a word, 
to behave as though nothing had happened. If anybody asked you about anything, you didn't know anything. If any asked you about the flying saucers, you don't know anything. You're not to say another word. And that's one of the great things about uh, guys like Dobson, that instead of embellishing, instead of you know inserting themselves into the storyline, they basically, you know, this is all I saw. This is all I observed. I can't say I saw this or that because I didn't. So they're very truthful in their accounts. They, and what's wonderful is they're all part of the same puzzle, the same mosaic that you can plug in. And none of them are contradicting the other. None of them are saying, well, no, you didn't. I was the one who did this. I was the one who drove the flatbed truck. I was the one who was out there gathering up the pieces. I was the one who piloted the, uh, this Pacific flight. That's right. They like every, all the millions of baseball fans who claim they were at Ebbets Field, you know, <laughs> when the Giants won the pennant or was it the Polo Grounds? I don't know. But <laughs> Or even for the detonation of the first atomic bomb in uh, Carrizozo, New Mexico. How many people? Well, I saw the flash. Even if they weren't born, I saw the flash. Right. But that's not the case with Roswell. I mean, that's the wonderful thing about this, that they aren't contradicting one another, that they're all supporting one another's testimony. I think that's just grand. Where is the – there's got to be one piece of that – a little tiny piece of that memory material in somebody's hands down there, tucked away in a box under a bed. I mean – what is your sense that that, that oh, uh, Richard, is I, it still on the ground? I can't, I can't tell you how many times we have had false alarms, how many times we've rushed you know down to New Mexico or down to Texas or down to Florida because someone claimed that there was still a piece in an old footlocker up in an attic or behind a wall down in a basement and always coming up shorthanded. But we continue to search the area where the debris was. We know it's a, it's a needle in a haystack. We realize that. But at least we're performing due diligence. Again, the skeptics who have never been there whenever it came to, you know, tracking down the witnesses, they've never participated in their own archaeological projects. They've never examined the documents, the photographs. They've never interviewed the witnesses except to attack them from afar where it's safe and, you know, there's nothing that uh, they would risk in challenging someone face-to-face. They take the more cowardly route of just sitting in judgment from a thousand miles away. And yet, we're the proactive ones. We're the ones that continue to try to get these people to go on the record while we still have time. And we'll be digging in the ground again in a few weeks because we remain confident that that piece of that holy grail may still be out there. Listen, let me ask you something. Uh, we sat in that big room in Washington, D.C. Yes. at the press club <laughs> for, for five days. And, quite an experience. Uh, yes. Yeah, quite the experience. And uh, I watched you and uh, I guess Kevin, Kevin Randall and all of the other witnesses uh, come Jesse forward. Marcel Jr., right. Yeah, the, whole, the whole group. And it was a historic event. And you do what you do, you've done what you've done, and you're going to do what you're going to do. I just want to ask you, Don, uh, uh, what keeps you going on this? What, what, what compels you to keep on going? You know, I was asked that question by Miles O'Brien when he was uh, senior science editor at CNN. Why are you still doing this? 
what keeps you going? You know, after all these years, why do you continue this? And I looked him square in the eye and I said, because you won't. And he didn't like that. Wow. But I guess that is the problem, that because especially with the American press, the American media, media because they won't, we have to. You and Richard have to. All of our colleagues have to. Because if we don't, we're, you know, we're on the brink of potentially the biggest story of the millennium. And I, for one, want to be there if it's ever disclosed, if it's ever un- uncovered. I don't want to quit the day before <laughs> and then you know, you know, sit and regret for the rest of my life. Yeah. Damn it, I could have been there. I want to be there. The subject of your, your new book, Inside the Real Area 51, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, is, is, yes. is that is, – do all trails from Roswell lead to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base? All is that trails the- lead to Wright-Patterson. Yeah, it's the aftermath. All the previous Roswell books, we pretty much end you know, just as everything is being shipped out of Roswell. And we've compiled, we've put together, again, all the eyewitnesses who were at Wright-Patterson through the years who were down in the underground vaults and tunnels and hangars and where the autopsies took place and where the bodies were stored and where the wreckage was tested. Even uh, Colonel Robert Friend, who was the second last director of Project Blue Book, he had never admitted this to us in the past, but I had just been with him a couple months ago out in Los Angeles, and he finally confided to me that, yes, I was at Wright Field when the materials came in. And I was aware that the materials were, you know, coming in from Roswell. And I asked him point blank, well, was there any talk that this was a weather balloon? He said, oh, no, 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 no. It was something, you know, really beyond that. Now, he wouldn't admit to me what, he, what it was, but nonetheless, they knew that it was something uh, beyond the pale. That's why it was being brought in the right field for testing, because they didn't know what it was. Is it still there? I mean, no, I say it. Uh, from I mean, all indications, uh, everything was pretty much shipped out in the early '80s. So I guess now the question is: Did it go to Area 51? Did it go uh, to some other facility that was much more secretive, much more uh, beyond the scrutiny of the public, beyond the press? Uh, right, Patterson is right, in, you know, in the middle of Dayton, Ohio. One of the colonels talked to us that they were having a heck of a time bringing materials in and out, you know, for any type of testing, just being in the heart of a city, that they were, you know, coming in late at night as they could. But such a place as 51, you know, out in the middle of the desert, out in the middle of uh, Nevada Test Range and Groom Lake, uh, it, it certainly could be a likely candidate. But our book focuses on Wright Patterson. The long history of the UFO investigation by the Air Force, the different projects, Project Sign, Grudge, and then Blue Book. And then we document and demonstrate that even beyond Blue Book, that there was another investigation that lasted for another five years with uh, Dr. Jalen Hynek still as a consultant to the project. And the fact that Blue Book was nothing more than a front, it was a PR front, but that there was a hardcore investigation out of Washington. We have the eyewitness testimony. We have the officers who were involved who describe such a project. And we, we, we clearly demonstrate that not only did all roads beyond Roswell lead to Wright-Pat, but that it's where 
they themselves demonstrated and determined that this was a technology off the planet. They never were able to figure it out. And as I often like to put it, they never were able to find the on switch to whatever was recovered at Roswell in 1947. Don, always a pleasure. And again, the new book, Inside the Real Area 51, The Secret History of Wright-Patterson. Thank you for this. Well, thank you. And you guys keep up the good work as well. It's always a pleasure. All right. Thank you, Don Schmidt. Uh, And Victor Vigiani, thank you as always. Always a pleasure. All right. You have an upcoming uh, speaking engagement? Yes, uh... we're coming up to one on October 17th at Lakeview Public Library. And then again uh, later on in November, I'll publish those dates as soon as they become final at the Mississauga Central Library. Just outside Toronto. Thank you, Victor. Always a pleasure. Thanks to you, Tim Spreen, for production. Uh, Back next week, I think we've got our Gary Patterson, the Fox Mulder of rock and roll, lined up to talk about the life and death, strange times of John Lennon. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.